Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is John Doran and I write about music. I've been hosting a video show called The British Masters for Noisy for a few years now. I usually speak to artists who feature strongly in my record collection. We've had everyone, from Marky Smith to Jimmy Page, from Liam Gallagher to Viv Albertine, from Tricky to Goldie. We've just launched our fourth series, and we've finally got round to putting the audio up from the interviews here. We'll be putting all the new episodes up, plus a few classics here and there. Today I am talking to a singular English musician whose instantly identifiable voice has towered over the pop cultural landscape from the 1980s to the present day. Tracy Thorne was a member of the non-more cult Marine Girls, who were one of Kurt Cobain's favourite bands. Then her voice was everywhere in the mid-90s due to her work with Massive Attack, and most significantly as one half of Everything But The Girl, with their track missing accidentally becoming an undisputed anthem of the era. Since then, she has become a respected author and journalist, and has recently returned to the musical fray with an album of disco belters called Record. You coined an excellent phrase with your new record in describing it as nine feminist bangers. These appear to be kind of crucial times for feminism. Is influencing the news on a daily basis. Was the kind of record born out of this kind of feeling that's happening at the moment? One of the things that the record represents is a sort of growing feeling of frustration, I think, among women. A lot of these things are things I've been saying for a long time. And I think a lot of the things that women are saying in the press, they have been being said for a very, very, very long time. I think what's changed for some reason is they're suddenly getting a bit more traction and being listened to and there's been a couple of breakthrough moments of people being believed on certain issues. It does feel like there's something in the air. We're not entirely sure why because as I say it doesn't feel like we're saying anything we haven't been saying for a while Um, but it it does seem to be just hitting home. Maybe the way you were delivering your message was a lot more straightforward. Yeah, no I think that is true. Um, And that's, you know, a mixture of things. I don't know whether it's to do with getting older and feeling a little bit more self-confident and assertive about things. Yeah, I think you're right. There were moments on this record when I thought, I just want to be really clear and straight to the point. I think, you know, unequivocally, it's, it's dance music, isn't it? But it's not the kind of dance music that we might associate Tracy Thorne with. Like, if I had to describe it, I'd say maybe it sounds like it was influenced by that glorious period of dance music that came directly before Acid House. The kind of like electro stroke disco that people like Arthur Baker, Connie Case, uh, Shannon, New Order were making. Mm. Obviously, this isn't the style of music that everything but the girl were making Mm. in the mid-80s, but is this still something that's kind of close to your heart? Yeah, it is. And I said I want to make a more electronic album again. I want to make a very upbeat album. But I want it to be in an area that I haven't specifically done before. So you're right. There's, you know, it's not house tracks. It's not trip hop. Um, And, you know, if there's a one area that I haven't particularly delved into, it was that period that I sort of lived through, but actually 
at one remove because as everything but the girl we were doing slightly different music at that time whilst i had all those records i wasn't necessarily emulating them looking at it retrospectively you know you were the absolute obvious choice to be one of the vocalists on protection massive attack second album and it makes complete sense. At the time, I remember thinking it was like a counterintuitive move, mm. though, until I heard the record, and I mm. thought, wow, this is great, you know. Did the like request for you to be a vocalist come as a surprise? Yeah, it did come as a surprise, because obviously at that point, you know, all any of us had heard was the Blue Lines album. So in some ways I felt, you know, my God, am I trying to follow in Sharon Nelson's footsteps? The singing was, you know, incredibly soulful. That's where they seem to live. And I didn't entirely regard myself as that kind of singer. So I wasn't sure exactly what they were aiming for. And it wasn't until they sent me some music. Once they sent me on cassette, this was how long ago it was, they sent me a cassette of some backing tracks. And then I began to think, oh, okay, they're doing something a little bit different. You know, because the tempos had slowed down. There wasn't anything as kind of obviously grand and sweeping and dance floory as Unfinished Sympathy. What I was hearing, I suppose, was what then went on to be called trip-hop, although no one really had a word for it. But I was just hearing these very slow, incredibly sparse, empty kind of dubby tracks. Um, and when I started to sing over it, I began to think, oh, OK, I can see how this could work. You could have a voice like mine, which has got this sort of rich warmth to it, takes up quite a lot of space, um, and there's lots of space on these tracks, so maybe it'll work. Did you ever speak directly to the Kurt Cobain or Courtney Love about Marine um, Girls? Courtney Love I did once, yeah. She was the one who came over and told me Kurt had been a huge fan and that Hole were covering one of our songs. And I remember thinking, wow, is, can that be true? You know, and then later his diaries got published and that's when I saw it written down in his handwriting. So it did seem very unlikely at the time. So I told my um, son, who's 17 this the other day, I went, you know when Kurt Cobain's diaries came out and he was a great one for making lists and there's one list where he made like his top 10 albums of all time or something. And it goes, number one, The Clash, number two, Public Enemy, number three, The Marine Girls. <laughs> and my son was like, what? And I'm like, I know, I feel the same. In 2018, I don't think you could describe Marine Girls as like being a household name. No. But their influence has kind of spread far and wide. I absolutely do not mean to throw shade at Marine Girls over this, but you understand what I say when I say it's kind of weird and exciting because the first album was started in your bedroom mm. and completed in some dude's shed. Mm. And it's so, it's kind of crazy how far it's spread, really. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, we would never have thought that's what we were doing at the time we recorded. You know, the first album, it started out as just a cassette of some songs in our bedroom. But it is really basic the recording of it. And we had such rudimentary musical skills, um, a lot of passion and enthusiasm which kind of shines through. And that's obviously the quality that, you know, made it find its way to all those people's hearts. Even as DIY records go, the Marine Girls really do <laughs> stand there at the kind of epitome of uh, DIY-ness. It is kind of crackers when you look at how quickly stuff happened for you and Ben. So you met Ben within days of moving to Hull. Yeah, first day. Um, Marine Girls were on the front cover of Melody Maker. You released a solo album. You formed and recorded the debut Everything But The Girl album. You were kind of covered in 
like smash hits an enemy frequent times all of this just before getting a first in English at Hull University. I don't want to be funny, but if a single one of those things had have happened to me at that point in my life, I would have been unbearable. Even I find that quite hard to remember now. I do think, hang on, how was I doing all that and still worked hard? Because honestly, although when you look back, you'd say this is clearly the start of a musical career, I didn't see it that way at the time. Um, I still thought this is a series of fantastically exciting events which are Mm. happening and I'm really enjoying it. Um, but I'm probably going to have to get a job soon. You know, I think already I was I was thinking, am I cut out for this? You know, it's great, but, you know, if I really take this seriously, that means I'm going to have to be a performer, I have to get on stage a lot. Do I want that? Am I going to be any good at it? I was pursuing a route up till that point where I was studying English, thinking maybe I'd go into something like journalism or, you know, become a writer. Part of me still thought that was what might happen. After Missing had been released in the US, in some senses your stock was so low with your record company, Mm. WEA, that they dropped you. Were you surprised that anything came of Missing? And what were your initial thoughts when you first heard the Todd Terry version? I mean, the Todd Terry mix was commissioned by um, Atlantic, who were the label in the US, specifically the dance department there, who were very supportive of the track. No one heard it and said, my God, he's turned it into a hit. It was just, yeah, he's delivered a really good, solid US club mix. Meanwhile, Ben and I carried on doing what we were doing, which was starting to work on the next album, thinking, well, that one's you know, finished, didn't quite do what it was meant to, never mind. It took months from that point for it to happen. And actually, Ben and I were in New York. We'd gone out there to do a bit of work on some new songs. And we picked up a copy of Billboard magazine one day, and it was in the club charts. The Todd Terry remix, quite high, I think. And no one had told us at all. And because we were in New York, we thought, well, let's just ring up Atlantic, you know. And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, no, actually, it's kind of, it's bubbling, it's kind of really taking off. It was one of those tracks that just kind of bubbled and bubbled to the point where people thought, well, hang on, we can actually re-release this now to pop radio. And it just flew from a track that everyone had thought was dead, then even being handed a mix that no one saw for the hit it was. I always think of it as one of those tracks that, like, people made it made it be a hit. It wasn't kind of manufactured into being a hit by studio wizardry or a massive promotional campaign or something. It was just, like, taken to the hearts of people, initially in clubs. There was something about it that just spoke really directly to people, I think, once they heard it properly. Wherever you happen to be, you know, and it comes on, what... What are your initial thoughts about it? That I'm really pleased that if we were going to have a massive hit, it would be with something that I'm still proud of. Because I still think it sounds good. You know, I know that that's not always the case, that sometimes you can have your biggest hit with something you feel, you know, isn't you at your best or doesn't represent you. But whenever it comes on, I just think that's a really... It's a really good-sounding record. It's quite an unusual-sounding record as Mm. well. I still think it stands out. You know, my voice does sound slightly unconventional, on the kind of record it is. You know, there's that real sort of quite deadpan melancholy to it. So it's got that good tension between, you know, what's happening in the rhythm section and then what's happening vocally and lyrically. So yeah, I do, I still have good feelings about it when I hear it. I believe the first punk single you bought was In The City by The Jam. That sounds about right. You bought it as a schoolgirl? Yeah. And then, yeah, just a few years later, you were on stage with Paul Weller yeah. uh, singing live. Were you still a teenager at that point? No, probably just very early 20s. Uh, how was that? 
some friends and I went up to, to see the jam in London. And as we were queuing outside, Paul Weller walked past us. So I wrote in my diary, you know, Paul Weller walked past us, you know, 25 exclamation marks. Fast forward something like two, three years, I'd be on stage with him. We sort of got in touch with him. Um, ben and I were students at university living in um, a student flat with no phone. So had to, at a prearranged time, go down to the phone box on the corner and stand there waiting for it to ring like we were in the Ipcrest file or something. Paul, to his credit, rang us on this um, phone box and, and we made arrangements to meet up with him. So, you know, it is, it is weird the way those things happen. When I talk to a lot of kind of female musicians who either came up in punk or just after mm. punk, some of them make the point that there were very few people that they could look up to as kind of female role models mm. when it came to doing stuff like, you know, playing the drums or being a bass player or whatever. You kind of jokingly refer to yourself as like the token girl in your first band, Sternbops. Were you aware of this kind of lack of female role models when you picked up a guitar? I was at the very beginning, but then, of course, I'm just slightly younger than the punk generation. So I feel I was lucky in that I had the benefit of those women who came just immediately before me. The Slits, the Raincoats, Chrissy Hind, Polystyrene, Susie Sue, you know, Debbie Harry, Patti Smith. You could really suddenly point to a whole new generation of women who were different to sort of female singers who'd come before, you know, um, and were really inspirational. So I think anyone who's just slightly younger than them, you know, looks to those women with enormous admiration and gratitude because they really were the forerunners. They really were the ones who I feel had no female role models to look up to, but they created the female role models that I think then the, the women who came immediately after them really benefited from. The idea of you and Ben and competitiveness. You know, you're both authors, you know, you're both well-respected in the fields of dance music, you're both clearly talented songwriters, and on and on and on. How, how do you kind of negotiate that kind of work in life with it, things not getting beyond just a playful bit of, you know, competitiveness? I mean, I'd be lying if I, I said it doesn't exist at all. You know, sometimes if we're both really busy and then it's playful competitiveness, which is fine. The tricky times, I think, is if one of us is busy and the other one is stuck. You know, that's inevitable when you're both making creative work because you can't always be in the midst of a good idea. It, yeah, it gets a bit niggly. And, you know, that's the truth of it. But, I mean, we're both, I think, honest enough with each other that we can then just sit down and have a talk about it and it's fine. You know, we've got through... <laughs> <laughs> enough times now. You know, when people say, oh, why don't, why don't you get back together? Why don't you do it? We both sort of go, ooh. <laughs> um, you know, I think we got away with it. But, you know, since then we've had kids as well. So it's now not just we're a couple and we'd be working together, but we're parents together as well now. So there's all that to negotiate. You know, the thought of actually going back to being together all day long and everything, I think it would be insane. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. That was me, John Doran, talking to a British musician who has changed the course of popular culture. This is the British Masters Podcast. Watch the visual versions of the episodes on YouTube by searching Noisy British Masters and subscribe here to get new episodes of the audio version. Godspeed, friends, and remember, listen to Electric Wizard.